Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPK on the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruthie Ann Baumgartner, who's a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors, who also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater. And Ruthie Ann is here again in this is this a post-COVID era? I don't, I don't know. It's hard to but say. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> um, and joining us by phone today from his thatched hut on the mighty Zambezi River in Malawi <laughs> is Richard Hill, host of WP, WPKN Show's First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand. And he's also host of the uh, uh, rotating basis of Mike Check. Richard is a musician and teacher and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut Richard, thank you for being here. My pleasure, and thank you so much for the introduction. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, that airs Monday evenings, 8 to 10, and executive producer of the syndicated show Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. In a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Bryce Green, a writer based in Indiana, who will be talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and uh, his recent article titled, Calling Russia's Attack Unprovoked, Let's the U.S. Off the Hook. But before we get to Bryce and that uh, important discussion, um, very happy to uh, uh, push the button and, and allow Ruth Ann to take off here on, on some of the things she's been thinking about this week. Uh, uh, thank you, Scott. Uh, I think my thoughts are pretty well... Um, Sorry, I have a little reverb here. My thoughts are pretty well summed up by the phrase, while our eyes are fixed on Ukraine and Russia. While they are fixed on Ukraine and Russia, another war continues to be heard. Um, sorry, another war continues to be waged here at home, one state at a time, one vote at a time, one issue at a time. But the upshot is a right-wing assault on access uh, to the vote, racial identity and equality, women's rights, states' rights, with some states' rights anyway, gender identity, history, education, and the U.S. Constitution in general. First, Florida lawmakers are limiting how racial equality, racial identity, and U.S. history itself can be taught in classrooms and companies. In the name of individual freedom, legislation controls what teachers, K on up, can teach about race and history. In fact, critical race theory, a concept taught primarily in law schools, has been a rallying cry since right-wing politicians realized the power of undefined phrases to terrify parents of children in grades K through 12 in the voting booth last year when it helped Glenn Youngkin become governor of Virginia. Also in Florida, the Republican-led legislature passed the so-called Don't Say Gay bill, part of the Stop Woke Act, which prohibits educators from leading classroom discussions on sexual orientation and gender in grades K through 3. What we cannot debate is that we send our students to school to learn to be thinkers, not to be told what to think, said Senator Manny Diaz, Jr., who carried the bill in the, in the Florida Senate. 
Meanwhile, in Texas, the Department of Health and Human Services has removed resources for LGBTQ plus youths from its suicide prevention website. And Texas Children's Hospital, the largest pediatric hospital in the nation, announced that it will no longer provide gender-affirming treatments in light of the policy directive. Full implementation of the Texas policy would further undermine this essential medical care by arbitrarily defining it as child abuse and requiring professionals who deal with children to separate them from these healthy supports, thus doing the opposite of what the standard of care requires. Although a judge has temporarily blocked investigations into families of Texas trans kids who provide gender-affirming care to their children saying this is unconstitutional and beyond the governor's authority, the statewide injunction remains in effect until the case is heard in July. Be aware that these and similar bills elsewhere are not guidelines. In most cases, penalties, including criminal sanctions, are imposed. On the women's rights front, Missouri lawmakers are seeking to stop residents from obtaining abortions in other states in a new strategy by the anti-abortion movement to extend its influence beyond the GOP-led states poised to enact tighter restrictions of the Supreme Court um, ruling and if the Supreme Court weakens its landmark precedent upholding abortion rights. An unusual new provision would allow private citizens to sue anyone who helps a Missouri resident obtain an abortion out of state using the novel legal strategy behind the restrictive law in Texas. The pattern emerges whenever a Republican-led state imposes new restrictions on abortion. People seeking the procedure cross state lines to find treatment in places with less restrictive laws. Abortion rights advocates say the measure is unconstitutional, this one uh, allowing the state to sue out-of-state helpers. It's unconstitutional because it would effectively allow states to enact laws beyond their jurisdictions. But that's just the point. As the bill's author said, if your neighboring state doesn't have pro-life protections, it minimizes the ability to protect the unborn in your state. But that makes this and other bills with similar intentions unconstitutional. Texas attorney Elizabeth Myers argues that states cannot regulate activities beyond their borders. A state's power, she says, is over its own citizens and its own geographical boundaries. These are limits imposed by the federal constitution and federal law. Voting rights continue under siege in state and federal bills restricting eligibility to vote, number of polling places, and access to absentee ballots. Some proposed bills criminalize voting errors, empower elected officials to discard votes or invalidate vote tallies, and even select winners regardless of election results. Redistricting following the questionable 2020 census also imperils voting rights. The curious coincidence with many of these proposed or approved measures is no surprise that the restrictions fall by one means or another disproportionately on voters of color. Meanwhile, the investigation necessary for holding Donald Trump accountable for the January 6th insurrection or any other crimes or misdemeanors while in office, including, why not, the effort to smear candidate Joe Biden by extorting accusations of corruption from Ukraine President Zelensky, and for the innumerable undocumented private conversations between Trump and Putin, as these, um, as these uh, prosecutions inch their way through the fine machinery of the law. Do watch the international news, but scour other sources to find out what the right wing has been busy doing to freedom, democracy, and the Constitution while your heart was in Ukraine and your eyes were on those nuclear power plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I just want to 
react a bit to Ruthann's uh, diatribe there, which uh, I heartily endorse. I, it's uh, yeah, it's so ironic, as you've said in your last sentence or two. Here we are, the world championing Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine for being the hero who's going to protect democracy across Europe and even, you know, across the Atlantic Ocean to the United States. And, uh, you know, that this is our, our champion of democracy when the real enemies of democracy are already here and they're making horrible progress in dismantling the institutions and mechanisms of democracy. It's so ironic. Anyway, I, what I wanted to do was to say a word or two to kind of set up our discussion with Bryce Green, who's going to be talking to us about Ukraine and uh, the history that shows that the United States ha- had some role in final result, which was the invasion. I'm quoting here from an article by uh, Norman Solomon. He says, on Capitol Hill, it's hard to find a single member of Congress willing to call NATO what it has long been, an alliance for war. And he gives the example of Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Libya, with virtually nothing to do with, quote, defense, other than the defense of vast weapon sales, and at times even fantasies of regime change in Russia. And the reverence and adulation gushing from the Capitol and corporate media, including NPR and PBS, by the way, toward NATO and its leadership are wonders of thinly veiled jingoism about other societies, reviled ones, we would hear labels like propaganda. But here, the supposed truisms are laundered and flat-ironed as common sense. The point is that th- this is sort of part and parcel of the United States political system, which when it comes to foreign policy, there's this sort of wonderful kumbaya that occurs between the Republicans and the Democrats, and even so-called liberal Democrats adopt extremely bellicose foreign policy positions that lead us into terrible situations. So I think I will stop there and see if uh, Scott is ready with our guest. Yes, we are. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Uh, right now, uh, we have Bryce Green standing by. Bryce is a writer based in Indiana whose recent articles on the Ukraine crisis were published by Extra, the newsletter of the group Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. The articles titled Calling Russia's Attack Unprovoked Let's the U.S. Off the Hook and uh, What You Should Really Know About Ukraine – And they both delve into the history of the U.S. and NATO's provocative actions as he describes them over recent decades, issues that U.S. corporate media rarely, if ever, discuss or dismiss as irrelevant to the current crisis. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us uh, this morning, Bryce. Appreciate you making time to um, share some of your perspective on this uh, crisis and the war in Ukraine. So... I would ask uh, Richard to lead off our, our questions here and comments. Okay. Good morning, Bryce, and thanks for joining us. Bryce, your article, Fairs uh, Extra magazine, was um, very interesting. And I-, I wanted to sort of mention it's called Calling Russia's Attack Unprovoked Let's U.S. Off the Hook. Well, that's a very provocative title. I mean, based on the conversation we just had about U.S media and the way that they uh, 
extol the virtues of of uh, militarism in NATO around the glo- globe. Can you give us the background that allowed you to come up with that title? One quote from your article, the unprovoked descriptor obscures a long history of provocative behavior from the United States in regards to Ukraine. I'll just use that as an intro for you to give us the background that led you to that title. Right. And uh, thank you again for having me on. Uh, I, I wrote this article because I was watching all this media coverage and they were acting like Russia's uh, aggressive behavior towards Ukraine existed in a vacuum. And when they did try to give it context, all they did was go back to the 2014 annexation of Crimea, which, uh, which was used to show that you know Putin is sort of like a Hitler who wants to recapture a uh, former empire, things like that. But starting there obscures a very important event that happened right before that, which was the fact that the U.S. overthrew the government in 2014, reorienting it towards the the Western sphere rather than the Russian sphere. Now, understanding why that happened, why the U.S. did that is crucial to understanding this whole situation, to understanding why Russia feels threatened by an expanding NATO, an expanding U.S. influence. And and that history really starts at the end of the Cold War. Um, As we all know, the Cold War ended, the Soviet Union dissolved, um, but there was a deal made between the U.S. and the, and the Russians. Um, it was informal, but both sides came away with a, a degree of understanding. Uh, the, the deal was that in exchange for not putting up a major fight against the reunification of Germany, the NATO countries or the United States would make a pledge not to move NATO eastward, not to expand this military alliance closer to Russia's borders. And uh, but of course they did, and by the late '90s they had several different countries join. Uh, but people in the U.S. understood that this was a very provocative action. They understood that this might lead to some problems down the road. In fact, the famed diplomat George Kennan, who was in charge of, or he was the architect of the U.S. strategy of containment of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, well, he came out and said. He was asked by the New York Times about NATO expansion. He came out and said that this is a bad idea. This is provocative. This is, uh, this, is this will push Russia into a corner. It'll make it feel trapped. And then Russia will have a bad reaction. And then some of the people who want expansion will say that that's how Russia is. That's how they always are. But that's incorrect because of what I'm saying now. Uh, and... and Kennan's views were shared by a lot of other people, you know, Henry Kissinger. In fact, even Joe Biden uh, understood this. There's there's been a clip going around of him saying that, yeah, NATO expansion is provocative. We shouldn't do that. And this is all the way back in the 90s. But even after that, the U.S. continued to expand and expand NATO uh, to the point where it was in Poland. uh, It was in Estonia. It was in Latvia. It was in all these countries that used to be. Uh, in sort of the Russian sphere of influence. Um, And the Russians repeatedly said that this was not a good idea. They were like, uh, they they were very aggravated at the U.S. arrogance in how they were able to push uh, this hostile military alliance up against their borders. And in 2014, the United States made a major play to add Ukraine into uh, that sphere of influence and add Ukraine to NATO. 
Now, historically, Ukraine has been a major asset of the, the Russian security apparatus. Um, during the Soviet days, it was actually part of the Soviet Union. Uh, but in 2014, uh, after protests against the, uh, the democratically elected president, uh, the United States helped to overthrow it, and that's uh, the, that's what's called the Maidan coup or the Maidan revolution, depending on what you think of it. Um, and we can go into detail on that later. But the end result of that was that the the country was sort of divided. There were those on the eastern side who wanted to keep the the president because the there have they have closer ethnic ties to Russia. They have closer. Uh, uh, they, fe- they feel more Russian than the Ukrainian. And President Viktor Yanukovych ran on a platform of uh, sort of building closer ties to Russia. Um, but after the overthrow, uh, the Ukraine proper sort of reoriented toward the West. And those areas in the East, they, uh, they rebelled. There was a major rebellion. And it was supported by the Russians. And we shouldn't downplay that. But... That is that is the the background to this whole civil war that the Russians then intervened in here recently. Uh, and so, if you look at what what the U.S. policy was, uh, the policy was to push up against Russia's border, despite the warnings from their own people, despite the warnings from the Russians, uh, and then expect that Russia was just going to do nothing about it. Now, that's just bad policy. Even if you accept that uh, Ukraine has the right to choose its own alliances, you can't accept that it's right to you know, overthrow governments and then say that that new government is acting in the democratic interests of its people. Uh, that's, uh, that's sort of trying to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, and so though all those policies combine to give the U.S. a significant degree of responsibility in this, in this current crisis. Uh, there were opportunities to negotiate a comprehensive security deal with the Russians. In fact, last fall or last winter, when the Russian buildup started, Putin was very clear about a path to de-escalation. He said he wanted the he wanted Ukraine to have a uh, to maintain a neutral status. Uh, in other words, it wouldn't join either an Eastern Bloc or a Western Bloc. And he wanted to negotiate the removal of these missiles that are so close to the Russian border in places like uh, Poland and Romania. Uh, But the U.S. refused to negotiate. And even before the Russians invaded, the U.S. had cut off diplomatic ties and basically said, screw you to the Russians. And then they started implementing sanctions before the Russians invaded. And uh, there was a recent report that U.S. intelligence believes that Putin made a last-minute decision to invade. Well, what happened at the last minute? The U.S. pulled out of negotiations and refused to address Russia's security concerns, their long-held security concerns. And so that is why I think that calling Russia's attack on Ukraine unprovoked uh, isn't, doesn't capture the full picture. It doesn't capture the full spectrum of U.S. responsibility. Bryce, thank you for that. I I wanted to just uh, frame this conversation and the points you're making in the context of the bloody and horrible war going on in Ukraine. And to discuss what we're doing right now, you know, in terms of the history, 
and understanding what led up to this this war is unwelcome, I think, by a lot of people in the U.S. and, and probably around the world because mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're solely focused on the death and dying of many Ukrainian uh, civilians and, you know, the violation of the border and international law. And, I, you know, for my part, I, I can hold, and I'm sure this is true of many of our listeners, you can hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. You can condemn what Putin initiated here with this invasion of Ukraine, but understand the context of what led him to make that decision. You, and I'm, I'm not sure if you agree, Bryce, but I, I think that's something I'd like you to ask you to comment on. But one other point I'd, li- I'd like to just make is that when we're talking about Russia's concern regarding their security issues uh, on their border, it's true now that NATO, as a result of this invasion, is is very much stronger than it was before the invasion. So mm-hmm. you have Putin, who this invasion was designed to upend or uh, disorganize the NATO alliance, when in fact it's brought it together. And uh, <laughs> it's backfired, I think, in large part. You even have previously neutral countries like Finland in Sweden considering NATO membership now. So uh, anyway, if you'd like to comment any of that would be would be good to hear. Right. Um, to your point about uh, holding two thoughts in your head, a, a, a lot of people, uh, a lot of Americans in the media will say that if you talk about NATO expansion as a root cause of this issue, well, then you're only spouting Putin's propaganda and you're justifying an illegal invasion. Yeah. I think that's that that's ridiculous because first of all nato expansion is a root cause of this crisis whether you like it or not whether putin says it or not uh and b uh, just because putin says something doesn't make it propaganda doesn't make it untrue uh and like i said i do condemn russia's invasion at the end of the day putin made the decision to invade Putin made uh, the decision to bomb these cities. Putin made the decision to try and recapture Ukraine. And so that is on him. But as Americans, we can't really control Putin's actions beyond controlling our own country's actions. And if our own country is goading Putin into a war, and if our own country is uh, uh, avoiding every opportunity to negotiate a peaceful settlement, if our own country is... Uh, you know, being as provocative as possible, well, then I think that that's what we need to focus on. Uh, that That's the main thing that we as Americans need to focus on, our own country's actions. And our own country's actions have absolutely led us here. Um, you asked me something else, and I don't remember what it was. No, I, my, my other point was that uh, NATO is more united than ever, and new, new, previously neutral countries are now considering joining NATO. So this, this has really strengthened NATO when... Uh, Putin's objective, if he had any clear thought in his head, was to weaken NATO, and it's backfired big time. Right. Uh, it's really hard to judge uh, Putin's Putin's state of mind or Putin's uh, own personal views about what why he's doing this. Uh, mostly because uh, I was on I was on the side of people who didn't think that he would invade, exactly because of what's happening now. You know, he's getting cut out of the world economy. Uh, NATO is stronger than ever. Uh, Ukraine is uh, Ukrainians are turned against them. Europeans are turned against them. 
uh, all like probably for the foreseeable future. And, and so this doesn't really get Russia a lot of what it wants, um, which is why that uh, that intelligence report of this being a last minute decision seems to fall on the line. Like this wasn't a a plan. This wasn't the original plan. It seems like the original plan was to build up troops in order to get the U.S. to pay attention and to finally make a comprehensive security deal. And, and in fact, if you look at where the negotiations are now in Ukraine, and note that the me- U.S. media doesn't really report on the negotiations. All they report on is how Ukraine needs a no-fly zone, which is insane. Um, but they don't report on the negotiations. But the way they are now is that Putin's asking for almost exactly what he was asking for before the invasion started. He's asking for Ukraine to go back to their old constitution, which enshrined neutrality. The The constitution was rewritten after the U.S. overthrew the government in 2014. Uh, and they're also asking for uh, a recognition that, you, that Crimea is Russian. Now, Crimea was annexed by Russia in 20, 2014. Uh, the majority of the people there, they voted for in favor of annexation and subsequent polls over the last eight years have showed that they still support uh, their Russian status. So if Ukraine were to recognize Crimea, they really wouldn't be losing anything. Now, the other thing that they want is uh, for these, the, the republics in the Donbass, those areas that rebel in the east, um, they want Ukraine to recognize their independence. Now, Putin had refrained from recognizing their independence for the last eight years because that civil war uh, it sort of paused with a ceasefire. And that ceasefire agreement would allow those republics to be reintegrated into Ukraine uh, and given some degree of autonomy. The Ukrainian government refused to implement it, and the United States refused to push them on that. And so it remained at a stalemate. Um, and those republics, they asked Putin to recognize them repeatedly, but he said, no, stick to these Minsk agreements. That's the best option. And that was Putin's position until, you know, three weeks ago when he decided to invade. Uh, and so if, if we're asking, like, what's the best way to do something, what's the best, what's the best thing that the United States could do in this situation? It is to back negotiations is to back a reasonable settlement based on the facts on the ground. And I think the, the settlement, the reasonable settlement looks a lot like what Putin's offering, uh, you know, neutrality, withdrawal of Russian troops, recognition of, of those independent republics and recognition of Crimea. Bryce, our, our co-host Ruth Ann Baumgartner has got a, a question or comment for you. I wish I could call it a, a question, but what I have is notes all over here that are that are trying to come together into a question. Um, I, I want to take a big step to the side. Uh, there are surveys now asking people in general, I guess, and maybe parents and kids, what courses should be taught in public school that are not yet taught in public school? And the popular ones are investment and finance. Now, I shudder to think of a high school sophomore studying investment and finance and using that as a key to life. But anyway, um, nobody really mentioned increasing the liberal arts. And it seems to me that the kind of tangle we're in right now is the result of not really paying much attention to the liberal arts past getting through a test 
on them because language is such a fungible thing. And, uh, and as we listen to, to uh, political discussions and look at what's going on on the ground and what's going on in our heads as to maybe what should happen, we're dealing with two whole different sets of language. One is the set of language that you use to manage things, manage actions, express reactions. And the other set of language is the one that you use to, to, to express and persuade beliefs and associations and abstract qualities. And I, I know that when we look at Ukraine, we're looking at both of these sets of language and they're mixing together. I, for me, when I look at Putin, I have the same, uh, the same thing going on. Your presentation is so interesting because the way you're walking through things makes so much sense to me and I haven't seen it presented in exactly that way. I'm an English major, what can I say? I haven't seen it presented in exactly that that way before. Um, the other thing I've noticed in everything that people have been screaming about the escalating price of fuel is that no news program that I've listened to has mentioned alternative sources of energy. So I feel as if when we turn on our news and even when we read our most trusted newspapers, we're dealing with a, with a vocabulary set that permits certain kind of thinking and resists certain other kinds of thinking. And is this exactly. a helpful thing for me to say or not? No, that's exactly right. Uh, a lot of my article focused on how the media was portraying the situation and how a lot of the assumptions that undergird like the, the actions of American empire are shared by the media. Um, they'll, they'll say that the United States has a right to intervene in these countries. They'll accept that, uh, they'll accept that this whole Ukraine conflict is a, a fight between uh, a U.S. backed democracy and a Russian autocracy. And then when you couch things in such like cartoonish terms like that, there's no room for nuance. There's no room for uh, self-criticism because, you know, uh, if the U.S. is the good guy well then, and Russia's the bad guy, well, then there's nothing more that you need to look into. And so it sort of shuts off a lot of the, the logical processes in people's brains. Like even, like I said earlier, like if, even if you talk about this stuff, Someone, you know, you'll probably get some callers. Someone will call me or you a Putin apologist mm. or spouting Putin propaganda. And that's a major triumph for U.S. policymakers because they've managed to keep the population from thinking about their own crimes and that their own role in creating crises uh, just by saying, oh, well, you know, you can't think like that. That's uh, you're not on the team if you th if you think like that. And that's right, right. extremely effective. That's how a propaganda system works. And our media is a major part of that. Right, this is question. Richard again. I wanted to go back to your conversation about the Russian demands for a, a negotiated settlement. And I, th I thought it was really interesting that I think on uh, March 8th or so, there was an interview with President Zelensky on ABC. Zelensky expressed willingness to negotiate Ukrainian neutrality. He went on to say various other things that were surprising to me. He said, regarding NATO, I have cooled down regarding this yeah. question a, a long time ago after we understood that NATO is not prepared to accept Ukraine. I'm talking about security guarantees. I think that items regarding temporary occupation of the territories, that being, that being the Donbass, 
and unrecognized republics that have not been recognized by anyone but Russia, these we can discuss and find a compromise on how these territories will live on. That was followed by Ukraine's foreign minister, Kulebas, who said that if we could reach an agreement where a similar system of guarantees as envisaged by the North Atlantic Charter could be granted to Ukraine by the permanent members of the UN, UN Security Council, including Russia, as well as Ukraine's neighbors, this is something we're ready to discuss. It struck me when reading that that, uh, you know, you listed Russia's demands, which basically were guaranteed that Ukraine would be neutral and they'd recognize Crimea. There's the basis for a successful detente here, but we do not hear anything about that from the uh, U.S. media who continually broadcast Zelensky sitting in his office with his T-shirt on, crying out for a no-fly zone and, and excoriating the United States for not being more supportive of his military action. Meanwhile, on the, on the flip side, you have him with a fairly conciliatory position toward negotiating with Russia. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think this goes back to what I said about how the media functions like they're they're not they don't seem to be interested in presenting the conflict as it is or seeking out a diplomatic solution in fact i did a a search on stanford's cable news database looking for mentions of uh de-escalation uh negotiation diplomacy those words versus terms like sanctions uh no-fly zone uh weapons artillery things like that um and it, it the, the latter like the the escalatory measures have like a, a three to four times higher prevalence in the media than talks about diplomacy of negotiations um what you said uh, about Zelensky cooling down on nato like that was true even before putin invaded but the u.s cut off negotiations before uh that could go anywhere um, and even after the invasion started, Zelensky came out. He was, uh, he was like, yes, I will meet with the Russians. We will talk. Uh, but then the State Department came out against that. Uh, and so they don't seem to be interested in, uh, in bringing us to a real healthy solution. And, uh, and that's strange because, like, you do, see, you do see a lot of, like, Zelensky calling for no-fly zones. You do see a lot of... Uh, you see a lot of what Zelensky is producing for, uh, like, Ukrainian audiences. You see a lot of that, like, trying to morale boost. But you don't see the actual diplomacy that he's making. Like, even Vladimir Putin, he uh, reportedly has told uh, Belarusian allies that negotiations are progressing. And that they, there, there, are, there is, a, like, a framework for a way out of this. But the United States doesn't seem to want that. They seem to be wanting to escalate things. And something I want to bring up, uh, I think I, I mentioned this in both of my articles, but there's good reason to suggest that the United States actually wanted this war to happen. Uh, because exactly what's going on now, um, it, it's a little shaky, but the U.S. is getting largely everything it wanted. NATO is consolidating. So uh, the, the, the U.S.-led military alliance now has more legitimacy. Um, the Russian economy is being obliterated. And so a major world competitor is sort of out of the way. 
uh, Russian gas is cut off, which means that European allies will have to go to, you know, U.S. gas companies. Uh, so this was a major victory for Washington. And in fact, there was a, an article in the Wall Street Journal written by a, uh, a researcher for the Atlantic Council. And if you don't know, the Atlantic Council is essentially NATO's de facto think tank. Um, and the article was called The Strategic Case for Risking War in Ukraine. And it laid out why the United States should refuse to negotiate with Russia regarding Ukrainian neutrality why the U.S. should refuse to negotiate on any of the security guarantees. Um, and essentially they said, well, this is a win-win for us. If Putin backs down without a deal, then he looks weak, the U.S. looks strong, and our geopolitical uh, position is strengthened. Uh, but if he goes to war, this is also good because, A, it will give the U.S. the right to, or give, give the U.S. the pretext to sanction the hell out of the economy, to, uh, to, know, to, to de- destroy the economies here, Biden was talking about deindustrializing Russia when he was announcing these sanctions. Um, and that you know, knocks Russia out of the economic contention for great power. Um, and, and B, it would allow, it would allow for a, a sort of a covert insurgency to bog Russia down in Ukraine, given it its Vietnam or another Afghanistan, which is probably the better analogy, uh, and that would, you know, hurt Russia militarily. It would increase domestic pressure on Putin, and it would uh, it, it would destabilize Russia. Uh, and C, another another reason that going to war would be good was because it would strengthen NATO's resolve. It would, I, I think, he said, forge an anti-Russian consensus across Europe, uh, giving NATO more legitimacy, giving them uh, a lot more a lot more reason to exist. Uh, because, you know, if you've been following NATO's politics over the last two decades, like they've sort of been uh, looking for a reason to exist. People have been questioning it. Uh, uh, remember during the Trump administration, they were like, oh, people aren't paying their fair share. Well, Germany increased their military budget overnight by billions. Uh, Poland is doing the same. And all these other countries are strengthening their commitment to NATO uh, and, and so NATO now has a good reason to exist because, you know, the Russian boogeyman has, he has designs on Europe and he might, who knows he'll, who he'll invade next and things like that. And so all of this is in the United States' favor. Uh, and so they had no reason to want to negotiate. They had no reason to want to de-escalate, just like they had no reason to de-escalate now. And if, uh, you know, U.S., the, the poor people in the United States have to suffer some higher gas prices. Well, uh, that's something that, that's a sacrifice that the rich people are willing to make. Uh, you, you repeatedly see, repeated on the media, that polls say that Americans are willing to pay more at the pump if it means punishing Putin. Well, that poll said that, yes, 49% of Americans did say that. But if you look closely, 37% of Americans who are making under $30,000 agree with that. So that's a little over a third. So two thirds of the most vulnerable Americans do not support, you know, higher gas prices. But, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the, the public relations team at the White House, they came up with what's called the Putin price hike. And uh, it seems to be a very effective propaganda messaging term to get people on board. And now you'll see uh, comments in newspapers around the world like, oh, when I paid uh, 
so much gas at the pump, it felt like I was paying for Ukrainian security. So I'm all right with it. Well, uh, okay, but <laughs> you're missing the bigger picture in that the U.S. engineered this and that the U.S. pushed for this. And you're being sort of screwed by your own country in a way. You know, Bryce, I, I, I wanted to uh, talk about another aspect of this conflict that involves the Republican Party, Donald Trump, uh, Fox commentators, including Tucker Carlson, and their seeming love affair with Vladimir Putin. And I wanted to just gauge where you think this is coming from. I mean, one one theory is is that Trump and the extreme right of the Republican Party and right-wingers and fascist groups in the United States have long admired Putin because they view it as an example of uh, uh, a totalitarian white ethnostate that they'd like to establish in the United States. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of interesting to see uh, Fox side with Putin and in, in certainly not up and down their broadcasts, but there is there is more than you would expect, uh, given the Republican Party and the right-wing history hostility to Russia. What, what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't know if I buy the, the whole explanation that this is, this is an example of what they want their country to look like. Um, uh, well, to an extent. I think they appreciate Putin's like, toughness, um, his, his, uh, his macho, manly character that he portrays. Um, but in the case of Trump, uh, I, don't, I don't think Trump really believes in anything or understands what he's talking about. Uh, in fact, you've seen, uh, you've seen him flip-flop back and forth over the last couple of weeks. He said that, oh, yeah, no, Putin, Putin uh, what he's doing is genius. And then he says, like, no, Putin, what he's doing is awful. It's terrible. He's a murderer. Uh, but on, on Fox News, that's an interesting thing. Uh, so Tucker Carlson, one of the – I think he's like the highest-rated cable news commentator uh, in, in America right now. He came out and started asking a lot of questions like, why, do, why, do, why should we care about Ukraine? Like, what does this have to do with us? Why are we focusing on this? Uh, this is, this is uh, Putin's backyard, I think was the term he used. Uh, and he, used uh, he used a lot of argumentation that, um, that I – somewhat agree with um but it doesn't come out of any principle that we should be uh we should act better on the world stage if you look closely at what he's saying he's saying that we shouldn't focus so much on russia because china's the real enemy they're the ones who you know gave us COVID 19 they're the ones who are spying on us they're the evil ones and we have to confront them and so it doesn't really come out of any sort of uh any sort of principle and uh, Tucker Carlson, his show in particular, I think that it serves as a sort of release valve for some of the anti-imperialist uh, or at least critical uh, foreign policy critical minded people in the U.S. body politic. Uh, it, it sort of gives them a way to or gives them a voice somewhat without going to its logical conclusion, without actually critiquing the structures of American power without critiquing the, the actual underlying logics that led us here. Uh, and so I don't think either Trump, uh, the Republicans, uh, I, I don't think they're serious when they, when they come out in, with skepticism of U.S. policy. Um, a lot of the Republicans, it seems to be, are 
are throwing their full support behind Ukraine. In fact, they're using it to call Biden weak for not sending more weapons or for not establishing a no-fly zone. Things that, you know, obviously could lead us to World War III. We could be shooting down Russian planes. And if that happens, well, I, for me, that, that's my game over. Like, if we're shooting down Russian planes, that's World War III. The nukes fly. Uh, uh, goodbye. <laughs> But that seems to be where the bulk of the Republican Party is. Now, I might be wrong with that. I haven't gone through and looked at uh, all of these uh, congressional statements and things like that. But at least on the mainstream cable news, they'll be like, wow, this really is an issue that's bringing Republicans and Democrats together, escalating a war, which, you know, if you look at U.S. foreign policy, that's par for the course. Bryce, if I could squeeze in one last question, because we are running right close to the edge of the show here. You, I think, quoted in your article uh, uh, something from the Washington Post, which said that in March 2014, Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine, and a month later, war erupted between Russian-allied separatists and Ukraine's military in the eastern Ukrainian region of Donbass. The United Nations Human Rights Office estimates that more than 13,000 people have been killed in this conflict over the past eight years. What can you tell us about that is not being discussed in the U.S. media about those separatist regions? And also, to what extent did the Ukrainian military go in there and uh, try to wipe out the separatists? Or did, in fact, the separatists have the firepower to kill off a lot of the Ukrainian military. I'm, I'm curious about, about that 13,000 people that have been killed and who they were. Right. So, uh, like you said, after the, uh, the 2014 overthrow and after the invasion of Crimea, uh, Ukraine started adopting all these new, new laws that were sort of trying, they were aimed at reducing this, this Russian influence that had been there for so long. Um, this is when they changed their constitution to uh, get rid of that neutrality clause. And there was a, there's been a long tradition of like ethnic Russian, uh, not quite separatism, but sometimes it does boil into separatism, but a sort of independent streak in those Eastern regions. And so they didn't like the fact that their government had been overthrown. Uh, they had a, they had strongly supported the other president. And so they rebelled. And when the Ukrainian military started sending in, uh, you know, sort of security forces, peacekeeping forces, uh, initially, they didn't really want to attack them. They didn't really want to. They the, the morale wasn't very high. I think even like radio, radio free Europe, which is you know a U.S. state media, uh, I think even they reported that a lot of the military just defected. They were like, we're not going to do this. And so what the Ukrainians did was they sent in what's called the Azov Battalion. Now the Azov Battalion is a far right. Um, and I know we overuse the word neo-Nazi or Nazi in, in American politics, but these guys have openly Nazi views. They carry Nazi symbols. Their patches have Nazi insignias, and they believe in eliminating the lesser races in uh, in Ukraine. But they were at the vanguard of these anti-government protests that toppled the government. And after that, they were formally integrated into the Ukrainian National Guard, and they made up the vanguard of these repress the repression of these separatists and so that repression spawned more uh it spawned more resistance and eventually that blew up into a civil war and during that civil war a lot of the victims the majority i think uh the u.n reports 70 
70, but don't, don't quote me on that. Um, uh, uh, the majority of the deaths are on the, Ru- the pro-Russian side. Um, and those deaths have continued to mount even after this ceasefire agreement. Um, and this was part of Putin's justification for the invasion. Um, you know, he made uh, overblown claims of a genocide going on. There clearly wasn't a genocide going on, but there were people being shelled. There were people being killed by Ukrainian forces despite this ceasefire. Uh, and so over time, uh, the deaths mounted and you know, those republics repeatedly asked for, you know, more Russian support, more, uh, more things like that. And the Russians sent it, but they fell short of formally recognizing the republics and like actually sending in peacekeeping forces until, you know, February 23rd and the 24th, which, which was the well, prelude to the invasion. And so I wouldn't put too much emphasis on it when talking about why Putin invaded, but that's certainly part of why he justified it. And that's certainly a, it's certainly a serious issue for the people in those regions, so the people who were being uh, shelled and attacked. In fact, if you look at, um, there's a European monitoring agency that tracks where shells fall, where explosions are uh, every day. They have daily reports in those regions. Um, and in the weeks before the Russian invasion, you saw a lot of more, a lot more explosions on the pro-Russian side. Um, and they increased, increased until a few days before the invasion. Uh, and, and so the Ukrainian government, uh, they, they're definitely not completely innocent here. Um, they are actively supporting neo-Nazi militias to wage their wars. And even uh, there was actually a, a UN resolution last last winter aimed at condemning Nazism, condemning uh, the glorification of Nazism. There were only two countries in the world who voted against it: Ukraine and the United States. Bryce, we're going to have to call it a, a game here. That that was very illuminating. I think that whole issue of of what's going on in the Donbas, the separatist militants there, is uh, is something that we've heard virtually nothing about. But we do want to thank you so much for being with us today on Resistance Roundtable. That's Bryce Green. He's an independent journalist who writes for Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting's Extra magazine. And his wonderful pieces can be found there at fair.org. Just uh, search for Bryce Green, B-R-Y-C-E, Green, with an E on the end. Bryce, thank you once again, and uh, we'll, we'll hope to keep in touch with you on this question as we go forward. Absolutely. I uh, appreciate you having me on. Bye-bye. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Bryce. Well, that's it for our Resistance Roundtable program. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're here the second Saturday of each month uh, where we focus on local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America uh, during a very dangerous moment in our history. And we hope you'll join us again here on WPKN at 10 a.m., again, on the second Saturday of next month, which is April, as things start to warm up. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. And thank you, Richard and Ruthann, for being here uh, this morning. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. Thanks.